bless your name lord you are indeed alpha and omega the beginning and the end lord without you we are nothing and we cannot do anything lord we pray that this morning that you would use your word to to glorify yourself that no flesh will glory in your presence we lift you up lord we give you all praise and all glory and all honor in jesus name amen Hey, good morning, how are you doing? We haven't seen you in a while. Where have you been? I know where I was, but where have you been? Good to see you fed after the fast. You're looking good having eaten and let's get into the word of God. Sorry, I don't have a time. I'm trying to make sure that I don't mess it up on my first Sunday back. And he came back and messed everything up. Just a minute. There we go. Good, good to see you, good to see you. Let's go to the book of Micah, chapter 2, verse 12 to 13. And if you are using the, the physical Bible, you have to go beyond Exodus that way. You have to go to the New Testament. Before that, then seven books, Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai, Zephaniah, Habaka, Nahum, boom, Micah. You found it? You sure? Still searching? If you found it, say amen. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like a sheep of the fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. They shall make a light, loud noise because of so many people. The one who breaks open will come up before them. They will break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. Their king will pass before them, with the Lord as they are ahead. You know, we've all been busy with, uh, with a series, Break Up, Break Out, and Breakthrough. There's a lot of breaking there, but hopefully you'll get one that is right. And Sunday, last Sunday, we were learning about compassion. You remember that? And those, those who were here will remember even Pastor Elijah quoting Park. You all heard him. I had it too. I was like, Pastor, did you just quote Tupac? 
I thought he was going to throw in a hook or something in there. But anyway, so our theme, uh, we, as we conclude today, comes from the book of Micah and, and the book of Hosea. And today we'll squarely just focus on, on the book of Micah. And as indicated from the title, we're focusing on restoration. But in order to understand all of this, let's take, let's just look at the context and the makeup and the structure of the book of Micah so that we best appreciate this context, this restoration that he's talking about. Now, Micah is one of the 12 minor prophets, as you know, and comes from a, where is that, where is that picture? There. Can you see it? I can't see anything. Okay, it comes from a little town south, south of Jerusalem called Moreshet, down there. And this is when the kingdoms or the nation of Israel had split into two. So there was the, the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom. And we call them minor prophets, but... They are not minor because what they have to say is not important. We call them minor because they are relatively shorter compared to the major prophets. If you compare with Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, so on and so forth. But what they have to say is so critical. As a matter of fact, when the wise men came to Jerusalem and they were looking for this king who was just born, they encountered Herod. And Herod called all the chief, uh, all, all the scribes and the chief, uh, yes, the, the, what is it? What did I write here? Yeah, the chief priests, sorry. The chief priests and the scribe came together. It was Micah's scroll that they cracked open to find out where this king was born. And it says right there, you Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are least among your brethren, Yet out of you will come out one who is to be king over Israel. Who is coming forth out of old from everlasting. So he will be born, but he will not be born. Mm. He will be born, but that will not be his beginning. Just so that they understand that they are not talking about an earthly king. They are talking about one greater will come through. So, Micah is a very big deal. So, he says all of this seven centuries before Jesus was born. So, you'll find out as you're reading the book of Micah, there are a lot of double fulfillments. There are things that are fulfilled in those days, and there are things that are fulfilled later on. So, you have to look out for that. But looking at Micah or Micah, or Michayahu, which literally means who is like God. Who is like God? He comes into the picture about 752 BC, between 752 BC and 699 BC. So he prophesies over at least three kings from Jotham to Hezekiah. He was actually a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah, Amos, and Hosea. And if you, if you read the book of Isaiah and Micah, you will find that there are actually verses that are word for word in both books, just in case you're interested. In my opinion, the easiest way to actually understand the book of Micah is to understand that it has a pattern. 
and this pattern will continually re repeat itself throughout the book. That slide. So there are warnings that Micah issues. Israel, this is what you did wrong. And then there are judgments. This is what this is what will be the consequences of your actions. But after that, there's a word of hope about the restoration that God will do. And if you understand again what I just said earlier, that some of this will be fulfilled duly, is that there is the hope of the restoration now, but there's another restoration that is to come. So that is how easy it is to understand the book of Micah and those are the struggles. So all this will repeat in a cycle. So let's start off in chapter 1, then we'll kick it off from there and we'll go all throughout to chapter 7. Not all in one shot with breaks in between. Chapter 1, starting from verse 3. So here what he does is he draws a parallel between when God came up to make covenant with, with Israel, Mount Sinai, with all of that drama. But here God is coming down and he's not happy about something. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. And that's, that's, that's a code word for something. The mountains will melt under him. And the valleys will split like works before fire. Very dramatic. Like waters poured down a steep place. All of this for the transgression of Jacob. And for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? And we can see that from here that something went off the rails. And when he's talking about the high places, he's referring to something specific, idolatry. This is where they've put up false idols to replace God. And uh, when, when God is re replaced, when, when you look at any society where God is no longer at the center, there is no telling what will happen after that. And he's, he's challenging them and he says, when you moved into the promised land, God was all you had. Now God is just an option. God is plan F. He is he's just a God among other gods. When you were desperate and you were in need, God was only your only option. But now that you're important, now that you have a title, now that you have a promotion, now that you have a diversified portfolio, God is just another option. We are not saying that we are, an atheist, we are atheists. No, we are just saying that God is not that important. He is not worth pursuing. He is not the first thing that we think about. He is not worth consulting. I will consider him if I have time. 
I will consider, yes, I will, I'm not, I will pray eventually, next week, maybe, but I just don't have that time. And God is looking down and saying, but why would you do that? Why erect a false something that is, cannot even satisfy you? Then from there, like I said, from there it's just, you can see then he will, he will continue to address these other things, but this is the principal thing. We might not necessarily erect statues, but where is God at the center of what we do? As families, as a church, as a nation, where is God at the center of what we do? We think about all the other things. We're like, okay, maybe let's just try God. Let's carry on chapter 2. Starting right at the top. It says, Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil in their beds. At the morning, at the morning like they practice it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields, they covet fields and take them by violence. Also houses and seize them. So they oppress a man and his house a man and his inheritance. So here he is dealing with relationships of those who are powerful and those who are not so important. And he says, you are using your power the wrong way. And imagine, he says, in your bed, you are supposed to be sleeping and you're, you're not even sleeping. You're, you're supposed to be sleeping, but in your bed, you're tossing and turning, plotting evil. Rest. Instead of planning all those satanic thoughts and just sitting there thinking, when I'm done with her, by the time, by the time I'm done with him, and here, if you, if you just read it, he's specifically referring to an actual event in 1 in, in, in Kings where, where, just to paraphrase it, so King Ahab had a farm. You remember King Ahab? And Naboth had a farm. King Ahab more powerful, Naboth not so powerful. King Ahab goes to Naboth and said, give me your farm. And Naboth says, God forbid, I'm not giving you my farm, this is my inheritance. King Ahab, like a spoiled brat, he goes home, he's sulking, he didn't even eat. His wife, Jezebel, that, that's her name, Jezebel, I'm not me. Jezebel says, what's wrong? Says, no, he's sulking, and there, the field. And she comes up with a plan to say, you are more powerful. Here's what you got to do. Call him to the elders. Call people who are willing to lie. Schemes, lies. Follow. There is no stopping once you remove God from the center. Call people who are willing to lie. Say, this man blaspheme God. They do that and they hurl him out, stone him to death, and they take his field by force. Scheming, lying, 
murder, theft, all because God, the fear of God has been removed from the people. We might not necessarily do that, but this is a warning of what can happen. This is a warning when people get too powerful and their power is not checked. Unchecked power is very dangerous, even to the person who possesses that power. He's not done. Chapter 3. This is where now he's dealing specifically with the leaders and the prophets. He says, And I said, Hear now, O heads of Jacob, and you rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? Is it not for the leaders to know what is just? You who hate good and love evil, you who strip the skin of, from my people and the flesh from their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people, flay the skin from them, break their bones, and chop them into pieces, them in pieces, like meat for the pot, like the flesh in the cauldron. Now hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice who abhor justice and pervert all equity, who build up Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with iniquity. Her heads judge, her heads judge for a bribe. These judges could be paid off. Her priests teach for a pay. They cannot teach you unless there's something in for them. And their prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is the Lord not among us? Since they are corrupt leaders who are only in it for the money and they have the nerve to say, is God not among us? We have the title Christian. We went through a 21-day fast. Surely God is among us. We have the t-shirt. John 3.16, we have everything. God is among us says, you, you can only prophesy to somebody who pays you. I'm just glad in South Africa we don't have this problem. Where you have to pay a prophet to tell you what you want to hear. We don't, we don't have that. I know there was a guy who, who left and escaped. It was not, no, I, I think I'm talking, it's, it's a different country. We, we, no, it's a different country. We, we don't have that. We don't have that problem. No, we don't. It's, thank God. But imagine the implications of this as a nation. Where people can only be attended to and their needs because they can pay. There is no room for the poor. As a matter of fact, I can tell you this. If you want to see the strength of a community, see how it handles the poor. See how it handles the widows and the orphans. We might not necessarily be preaching for money, 
but it's very easy just to form little cliques with people that you're comfortable with in your class. You might not necessarily say it with your mouth, but your action says, we cannot accommodate you. You need to come up to this class. And God is watching this and saying, what are you doing? Where are the poor among us? Those who need us. Was it not for them that God blessed you? Let me leave it alone. I can see that I'm stepping on, on toes, but let's reflect on that. Reflect on that, that there are people who feel that they cannot come to this church because their dress code does not match up. They don't think that they can sit here and hear the word just because they feel like they, they have not arrived where we are. Let's go to, to what he says after he has said, oh, I, I have not gone through everything that he has said, but just for the sake of time, let's just go through what, what he says are, are the consequences. Let's just go back to chapter 1. Verse 8. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field places for planting a vineyard. I will pour down her stones into the valley and I will, unco I will uncover her foundation. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces and all her pay as a hallowed shall be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay desolate. Chapter 3 Therefore because of you, those who prophesied for a bribe, Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins and the mountains of the temple like the bay hills of the forest. Ima imagine those consequences. Just because we are straight, some things are just not happening. And God goes on to to paint this picture like in a courtroom setting and says, and he says to them, come and charge me. You are not happy with me. Come and put your case on the table. Let's hear what you have to say. But then he goes first and he says this in chapter 6. And this is just the heart of God being poured out and he's trying to reason with them. And he says, oh my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I, I redeemed you from the house of bondage. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Acacia Grove to Gilgal that you might know 
that you may know the righteousness of God. He says to them, listen, to, am, are you tired of me? Are you that tired of me? But then he goes on to say, was I not the one who brought you out of bondage? It is not as if they had a plan to get out of Egypt. God was their only plan. Was it not God who picked them up from that bondage and brought them to the promised land? It is not because they were better than other nations who were probably in bondage at that time. It was because God was merciful. And he says, I did all of that and this is how you thank me. With rejection and rebellion. Because as much as we can go through all kinds of situations where we're thinking, maybe God is not worth it, but when you look back, when you just take time, just a little bit of time to look back, everyone can testify that there was one time I was in bondage. I had no plan of getting out. And God found me in that bondage, showed me his mercy, took me and put me at this place. It might not be that ideal right now, but I am not in bondage. I, I might not be in a perfect place, but I was in bondage. I could have died in bondage if it was not for the grace of God. And they, instead of responding, they, they come up with, with another response to say, with what shall we come before the Lord? This is not them wanting to repent, no. They're just trying to plead a case. And bow myself before, shall I come before him with bent offerings? With calves, with calves a year old, will the Lord be pleased with thousand rams? Ten thousand rivers of oil, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. I could hear God said, you don't get it. You're not getting it. God was not looking for sacrifices. God was not looking for them to offer more and more sacrifices. It's not that God will be pleased if I bring my tithe. What if I double my tithe? God was looking for obedience. God was just looking for obedience. And then this response, we just summarize, is pretty much, and this is one of, maybe one of the most famous verses coming from the book of Micah. And this response, he says, he has shown you, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. What, in everything that the demonstration of what God has done up to this point. You are supposed to get it. You are supposed to get it that you are supposed to do justly with, 
with one another in your relationships. Treat each other justly. Do as you would want to be treated. Don't just be merciful. Love to show mercy. Not just to be merciful so that you can say I was merciful, but love to show mercy. Because God was merciful when he dealt with you. If God had treated us how we want to be deserved, no one could stand. Because each of us had something coming. But if you stand there and think, I am st standing here on my good works, we have missed the point completely. Because then the mercy of God is no longer applicable to us. And if you don't think that you received mercy, how can you be merciful to someone else? Just walk humbly with your God. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Hum humbling yourself does not mean saying that I'm nothing. It says think correctly about yourself as it relates to the mercy that you have received. You, were, you, you received mercy. Therefore, there's nothing for you to boast about. When you come to the presence of God, you're so reminded of what the level of mercy that you have received. And if you can count down and say, but Lord, I did this and did this and did this, then we have missed the mercy and grace of the Lord completely. The last section, the concluding section. I don't know if the worship team can come up, but this section is kind of long, but it, it might be good for you to come up. The closing chapter gives this picture. And it gives that a picture of a man who is sitting dejected, rejected, and hopeless. He has come to the end of himself. And as bad as, as it is for this man, this is not a bad place to be. As individuals, as families, as a church, and as a nation. When you come to think of it, and he's saying it, it's a very, very sad and sombering part of, 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 my, of the book of Micah, because he says, woe is me. He is no longer arrogant and exalted and self-important. He says, woe is me. For I am like those who gather summer fruits, like those who glean vin vintage grapes. There is no cluster to eat. Of the first fruit which your soul desires. Things are so bad. But in the midst of this gloom and doom. He gets an injection of hope. Verse 8 he says. Do not rejoice over me my enemies. When I fall. I shall arise. When I sit in darkness. The Lord will be my light. In the midst of, of this hopelessness, he is no longer leaning on his sacrifices. It is not his arrogance that is bringing him up. He says, I remember something. I remember something. And he's leaning on two things. The character of God. And the promises of God. It's no longer about him. He realized if I'm going to come up, it is the land of God that is going to have to do something. 
Because you know when you have gone through so many plans and you know that they are not working. But then you recall there is a God. And God is not going to come up to, but why was entire you plan A? And he says this about God. In verse 18, he says, who is a God like you? Who is a God like you? And this gives a picture of somebody who has done some serious searching. He has gone through so many options. And he arrives at this bedrock. He says, who is a God like you? We have tried other gods. And they are not measuring up who is a God like you. Pardoning iniquity. And passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever. Because he delights in mercy. He's not just merciful. It is in his character to be merciful. It is not just God when he's merciful, he's not doing us a favor. He just can't help it. That is who he is. Here is the thing. God does not overlook sin. Amen. God does not gloss over sin. Amen. But he cannot not be merciful. Excuse the double negative, but he cannot not be merciful. And the idea of restoration is not ours. It's God's. And it's, restoration is not linked to how good you apologize. Think of the prodigal son when he gives that picture. He says, when he was still far, the father saw him. And the father does not go to him and say, if it isn't mister, I want my inheritance. I see your bag. Where are your girlfriends? Everybody look, this is the guy who wanted his inheritance and When he was far, when he was far, which, mean, which gives you a picture that before you even thought about returning to God, God had already made up his mind to take you back. Before you, you, you could work out the words, okay, this is what I will say in my prayer, I will repent, then I'll go into worship. No. He will take you back. L listen to this when he says, he will again have compassion on us. I know you're probably sitting here thinking, you don't understand how far I fell. No, you don't understand how far the mercy of God will fetch you. We can look back and you, you don't understand how my 2022 was like. But I say, he, will, he says, he will again have compassion on us. And he will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. 
you will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sown. This was his promise from the days of old. And imagine you're having a conversation with God in the beginning of the year. He says, look, there are some things which are not right. There are some things which are not right. And there are consequences to the actions. But there is mercy and restoration. At the same time, because like I said, God does not gloss over sin. That is why we have Jesus. God could not just say they are sorry and they are forgiven. Somebody had to carry the weight of our sins. And the full weight of our sins had to fall on Jesus. That is the restoration that you think about when, when you read the book of Micah. That the plan all along, no matter how far people strayed, was always to restore them back to God through the Lord Jesus. He could not just say, I am overlooking their sins. Jesus had to step in and take the full judgment of that sin, of that rebellion. Before you could even pray about your sins, Jesus had already made a way for us to be reconnected back to God because it was God's plan all along. As we close, we have seen in all these verses that God delights in mercy. He's compassionate. He's a God who reaches out to us. But we have to be available for him to reach out to us. We have to open our hearts for him to be able to pour out his mercy. Are we open this morning to say, yeah, Lord, I don't have a plan A or B or whatever. If you don't do it, nothing will happen. Are we open to, for him to restore us? Whatever area, I don't know how far you had removed God from the center. I don't know how bad your relationships are. But this morning, God is able to restore. That, that is good news. He's not saying come up with a plan to restore. No. You come and he does the restoring. You bring your heart to him and he does the restoring. No matter how far you have fallen, when you fall, you will arise. When you sit in darkness, the Lord will be your light. Going back again to the scripture that we started with. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like a sheep of the fold. Like a flock in the midst of the pasture. They shall make a loud noise because of so many people. The one who breaks open will come up before them. They will break out, pass through the gate and God by it, their king will pass before them with the Lord as their head. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much.
that we serve a merciful God. You are just, but you're also merciful. Compassion is found in you, Lord. Our hope is anchored in who you are, Lord. Restoration is found in you, Lord. We come as a people and we humble ourselves before you. Restore us, Lord. As our only hope, restore us, Lord, because you are compassionate over your people. Restore us, Lord. We seek you this morning. Not because our plans are good, but we know restoration can only be found in you, Lord. Lord, we thirst for you. And as we begin this year, Lord, we don't want to go anywhere without your presence. Everywhere where we want to be, Lord, if your presence is not with us, Lord, don't take us. We praise your name, Lord. And if you're here and you have not accepted Jesus, the restorer, he is available this morning. The good news is you don't have to search anymore. You don't have to go so far He's right here this morning. And where you are, I would encourage you to do business with God. Reach out to him this morning. Your life can be restored this morning. Father, we thank you so much that through your son Jesus, there's complete forgiveness. You died for us, Lord. We thank you so much, Lord, that you rose again and we know that you're coming back for us again. We have full assurance of your grace and your mercy towards your people. And those who are reaching out to you this morning, Lord, meet them where they are, Lord. Let them experience your grace and your mercy. Restore that relationship. We thank you so much, Lord, that you're faithful. You never fail us. You never leave us or forsake us, your people. We bless and glorify you because you're faithful. In Jesus' name. Amen.